0: Please! another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkandstuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX, and whether you're listening to the audio podcast version or watching the video version on Funkandstuff.net or through YouTube, and the podcast is available from any leading provider pretty much, iTunes, Spotify, what have you, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. You'll get early premieres, other insights, and very cool stuff. So you want to subscribe and support the show? Also, show some bling—you know, uh, some flair. Get your official gear at the Stuff.net store. There's truth and rhythm gear. There's Funkin' Stuff gear. Very cool stuff. Show your support. Also, I want to give a shout out to the Funk. Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be a Funk Ambassador. For more information, go to thefunkcenter.org and keep the funk alive. Right now, I'm going to take you to episode episode uh, featuring Dennis Coffey, the legendary guitar player from Motown and so many other recordings. He's off camera on the phone on this one, but, you know, talk about a legend. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for tuning in. I am thrilled to welcome to the Truth in Rhythm Mothership, a funk guitar giant who is a member of Detroit's legendary Funk Brothers, played on some of Motown's most progressive hits, and went on to a decades-long solo career that included the off-sample gold record classic Scorpio. My guest is Dennis Coffey. Dennis, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining the show.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here.
0: And where is here today for you?
1: Uh, still Metropolitan Detroit, where it all began, man. Still here, doing it, playing every Tuesday night and doing gigs and sessions and whatever. So I'm still at it.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Um, you know, believe it or not, I hate telling people this because I've had so many musicians on the show that are from Detroit, but I've still yet to be uh, to, to go there. So... <laughs>
1: Well, if you do, go to the Northern Lights Lounge on Tuesday night. I've been there for twelve years. We're still rocking it out.
0: Nice. So glad to hear that. Well, let's yeah. ju- let's uh, jump in, and um, we're going to test your memory banks a little bit, if that's okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> so, obviously from Detroit. Um, when did you? Uh, when and how did you first get into guitar, Dennis?
1: Uh, you know, uh, I think. You know, I took a few lessons back when I was, I don't know, nine or ten or something. And uh, uh, these guys weren't real players. They were teachers, you know. So they had these guitar books and you were playing Yankee Doodle Dandy and all this kind of stuff that didn't make any sense to me anyway. So I didn't bother with it. And then uh, I had a couple of cousins up in the Copper City, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula up there. I used to go up there every summer, uh, Maryland and Jim Thompson at the time. And they were playing guitars and they were playing country and Western. I says, wow. So they taught me some songs, you know, on that vacation. I was up there for a couple of weeks. And uh, so I says, you know, you can really do this. So then I then I really saw that uh, it, it was something that uh, it was, you know, country and Western, but it was still music I could relate to. So uh, that got me going. So then when I got back to Detroit, uh, uh, I started, uh, you know, Doing a lot of self-taught stuff. Then I'd find a teacher once in a while to teach me a few things, and uh, and then just went on from there. You know, I got my, I did my first record date and got paid for it. And took a solo on it when I was fifteen.
0: Wow! Did you have any? Uh, did you have any uh, mus- musical? Uh, you know, talents in your family?
1: Yeah, um, I had an aunt auntie that could sit down at ninety six and play ragtime music with no mistakes. <laughs>
0: That must have been fun as a kid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I watched her, uh, and, uh, and then her sister used to play piano and teach piano. And, uh, my Aunt Martha, she used to, uh, and her daughter could play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata and sight read it when she was 14. So had a lot of music in the family.
0: Nice. And who would you say were some of your, uh, early playing influences?
1: Well, you know, when I first started, uh, I was listening to the blues, you know, Jimmy Reed and B.B. B. King and all that stuff, you know, and uh, uh, and then uh, I went through uh, uh, a period of Chuck Berry and all that guy, you know, those guys, the, the early guys that were creating that stuff. Uh, and uh, also, you know, James Burton was working with... Uh, Ricky Nelson and he was working with Elvis. I got to play with James a few times and got to meet him and play with him overseas and stuff. So he's, he's still a great player out there playing. So, And then uh, I got to meet uh, Scotty Moore, who played with Elvis. I got to meet him when I played in Memphis. So uh, those were the kind of guys when I was growing up and then uh, once, you know, I, I was old enough to go to a, a bar then. Uh, and. Uh, uh, all the guitar teachers said, well, hey, we're going down to hear this guy, Wes Montgomery. You know, he's like the real deal and so forth. So uh that's the first time I heard a jazz guitarist. And once I heard Wes, it was like, oh, my God, I got to learn how to do this, you know. So I ended up actually sitting down with him and having a beer every week he'd come here. I'd hang out with him and stuff. And uh, I ended up in L.A. going over Joe Pass's house all the time. So I learned from those guys as well. So uh, that that's kind of where it went for me, you know.
0: Wow, those are, those are some heavy weights. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did, when you were up close to guys like that, did it make you think, wow, I got to really buckle down? Um, What was it like, you know, being in the presence of like a Joe Pass?
1: Well, I mean, he, they're very nice guys, you know, Joe Pass used to smoke that big cigar and everything, you know, so he was cool. Wes Montgomery was a nice guy, I'd sit down and buy him a beer, you know, they were all these were just regular guys that were tremendously talented, and uh, you know, to be in front of Wes Montgomery and watch him tear off those solos—it was unbelievable. Man, it was just. Once I heard that, I said I got to learn how to play jazz.
0: And what was your, uh, you know, instrument of choice in those days?
1: Uh, I was always a guitar.
0: No, but I mean, yeah. what 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 type of guitar?
1: Oh, back in the early days. Uh, Probably Harmony guitars, Those, the, you know, where you could buy a guitar affordable, you know. So I bought, you know, cheap guitars like that. And uh, uh, finally, I think in 1963, uh, I got what I thought was a real good guitar. It's my Gibson Burland. And so from then on, I was pretty much a Gibson man. And Gibson actually uh, gave me a new 355 back in, I think it was 2008 when I played with Les Paul and Larry Carlton and all those guys. So Gibson gave me a brand new 355, which I
0: So, I know that you played with uh, Del Shannon early on. How did that materialize? Uh, You know what?
1: Uh, I was with a group called the Royal Tones. And Harry Balk was our producer. And he had Impact Records and uh, Twirl Records. and. So we were working in the Jersey Shore, and uh, he hooked us up with Del Shannon because he wanted us to back him up. So uh, we went down to, uh, I'm trying to think of the studio. It was in New York City when we played with Del Shannon. I don't know if it was Media Sound or one of those... uh, Studios, so 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 we, we could drive down from New Jersey down to New York City and record with him and we could rehearse with him also because we were working the, the Jersey Shore and he came up there and rehearsed with us and stuff so that's how that started in fact the first gold record I played with was Handyman with Del Shannon
0: well what, what kind of uh, character or personality was he
1: uh, he was a nice guy you know he was uh but but I know we were in uh Times Square at the time, and uh, when we went out, we were going to go to the movie or something. And you know, Times Square was pretty seedy then, so Dell pulls out a whole packet full of bills and stuff. I says, Are you crazy? You're trying to get us murdered? <laughs> <laughs> they'll be waving that money around Times Square. So that was the deal. And then it was funny because uh, he was playing in the Ritz, I think, in New York, this club, and I went into the club. Because Bob Abbott I think, was, uh, I don't know if he was playing with him then. But, uh, anyway, so Dell didn't even know that I was in the audience. And uh, most of the songs that he did in his show, I had recorded with him.
0: So, from there, you know, how did you get exposed to or get into or cultivate, you know, a... a um Ability and interest in funk music.
1: Uh, you know what uh, Bob Babbitt and I used to do well, back in 62, 63, where a lot of Northern Soul records, you know, Open the Door to Your Heart by Daryl Banks and the volumes, all that stuff for Harry Baulk and, and different people. And and uh, Bob and I could both sight sight read really good. Most of the guitar players back in the day could not. And most, a lot of the bass players couldn't. So we started getting a lot of recording sessions in Detroit uh, doing all this music and that's kind of how we started. You know, then we then we got into Golden World and started to do all that and uh, that, that's kind of how a lot of that stuff happened, you know, just being at the right place at the right time. You know, like uh, when I first with uh, with Golden World, I got a call and uh, a guy called me up and says we want to use you on a session and I said, well, when? He says well, right now the guitar player can't read the charts, so... I took my three-year-old daughter, Jordan, I took her to the studio and stuck her in the corner and did the session and read the charts, and then I was doing Golden World every
0: day. So what what was it like, you know, I, I'm i a, a bit younger than you are, and so I, I got into, uh, you know, R&B and funk music in the mid-70s. What was it like being there in the late 60s when funk music really was just uh, emerging? And it was fresh and new, and you were hearing James Brown or Sly Stone and these different uh, sounds on the radio at shows. But what was it like to to be there and experience that?
1: Well, you know what, it was good because you know I was also uh, I was in the service. You know, when I when I got out of high school, uh, I volunteered for the draft, and I volunteered for the 101st Airborne Division. So I was down there about the time Hendrix was down there, at uh, Fort Campbell, and uh, so the guys in his unit hit his guitar and wouldn't give it back, so he was upset, but my rhythm guitar player, uh, he cut up a guy in a bar fight, so he had a, he had to join the Airborne to go to prison. So So nobody really wanted to try and hide our guitars, I don't think. <laughs> So that, that's kind of that was you know one part of it and I was doing uh, I was recording down in Columbia South Carolina when I was down there uh there was Maurice Williams was from down there so I uh, I didn't play on stay but I recorded the record he did after that I played on so I was doing sessions while I was in the army down there that's kind of how that started and then uh when I got out of the army I was out of work for two weeks and I sat in for a job with a band and and I was working six nights a week in a club up here in Detroit.
0: When you were doing those sessions, um, did you have any leeway? You know, were you able to add any of your own flavor, or did you really have to go by, you know, what was there?
1: I think the ones I did down south in Columbia, that we just learned the songs. I think Jimmy McCullough was a keyboard player, and he he was writing with this other guy. Uh, I can't think of his name. Uh, uh, but uh, they, they wrote some songs together and whatever, and uh, we just learned the songs and we kind of, once you learn the songs, you know, then you come up with some ideas or whatever. We kinda, and I had a record out uh, called Holding Hands, uh, May Records out of New York when I was living, when I was in the Army down there in South Carolina. And they said, well, a guy with the name of Dennis Coffey could never have a hit, so they called me Clark son. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I did one record for them, uh, Holding Hands, I think it was called, and that was not a hit.
0: <laughs> so you had an alias already.
1: I did. I did. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the way it was.
0: Um, so I know you had your, your solo album debut, I believe, in 69. Um, but." Uh, can you set the uh, sort of timetable for us of how events progressed in terms of uh, working with Motown and, and coming out with your first solo record? Uh,
1: Motown, uh, how that came about is uh, I got a call one day from James Jamerson, and he's the, the legendary bass player. He ended up being my best friend at Motown. So anyways, and he put Hank Cosby on the line. Hank Cosby was uh, Stevie Wonder's producer, and he was a contractor for the musicians. And he says, well, we're putting together this producer's workshop, and uh, we're going to meet upstairs at Golden World, because Motown had purchased Golden World Studios. We're going to meet upstairs at Golden World Studios, and uh, we're going to pay you a retainer, put you on a salary, and we're going to meet four nights a week for two and a half hours and we're going to give the producers at Motown a chance to experiment where they're really not on the clock, like a union session and that kind of thing, and they're not looking at studio time. So I was involved with that, and after, I don't know, a couple, a couple months, uh, Norman Whitfield came in, the producer, and he had an arrangement of a song called Cloud Nine. So he put that arrangement up and says, well, let's run down this song. And I just happened to have this Wawa pedal, this Crybaby Wawa pedal with me, and I put that on at the beginning of that. And Norman says, That's it. That's what I'm looking for. Because he was trying to get into the psychedelic thing anyway. So within the two weeks, I was recording Cloud Nine with the Temptations. So I just took off from there.
0: Wow. So so I'm trying to think, that was like 68? Is that about? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. 68, 69. Mm hmm. But I had already played on on Hits of Golden World, and I already played on uh, Hits with Del Shannon, so I was a seasoned guy already.
0: And you played on some of the most amazing Temptations tracks. I mean, that was, you know, quite an evolution for them with Norman Whitfield. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what Norman Whitfield was like in the studio?
1: Norman was a very dynamic producer. And he was a street guy going to clubs all the time to hear what was going on. So he was connected with the audience, you know, so that's how he stayed in touch with what was happening. And he saw this psychedelic thing come up, you know, and he wanted to get into that. And I was the guy that helped him do it because I was doing all the fuzz tone. I was doing the wah-wah. I had the echoplex, like ball of confusion and all that stuff. But we didn't overdub anything at Motown. We did it right where we did the tracks. So you'd go in the studio, we used to get one song an hour, and uh, we'd read, read an arrangement we never saw before, and we would play the arrangement correctly, because they had good arrangers, so you had to play the chart correctly, and then you could add stuff in and everything. And we would do one song an hour with no mistakes and make them hits. That was our job.
0: Wow. So what were you thinking when you heard a track played back, like Ball of Confusion? Were you like, wow, this is just amazing?
1: Well, uh, we were like, we made our living making uh, the producer and the writers and everybody happy that we were on the sessions with. That was our day-to-day thing, so... If, if we had, uh, if we uh, made a record and everything, it's like still waters run deep. And I played on that for the Four Tops, because the only people that were ever there with us is the producer and arranger. The, the artists were usually not in the studio. When I heard that, I said, "This thing sounds backwards to me," and it really did. And then it came out it was a big hit. So that shows you, I didn't know. I mean, the producers—that's their job. My this, my job was to make them and the writers happy for what I was doing in the studio you know, and, and they control the artists and sometimes the artists were there, but generally they were.
0: Was it a kick though when you would, uh, you know, hear it on the radio all the time?
1: Oh yeah, I remember for one year I was in three songs in Billboard Top 10 and 10 in the Top 100 for a year straight because I was also going on the Muscle Shoals recording Wilson Pickett and then I was recording that night for Holland Dozier and Holland and doing uh, Free to Pain and all those acts and uh, then I was doing the dramatics, you know, over at uh, United Sound. So we were busy. I was doing 18 sessions a week, three hours each here. And I did the same thing when I lived in L.A. I was doing 18 sessions a week.
0: Wow. (laughs) I bet you look back and wonder how you kept up that pace, huh?
1: Well, I was working in the clubs at the same time, especially here. You know, so I uh, uh, I, I was playing three nights a week with Melvin Davis and Lyman Woodard in the jazz clubs so i was doing all that plus doing the sessions and everything else during the week and, and just working it all out so it was fun it was really fun because it was exciting we we're playing new music all the time and you know a session guy every day is new music you don't know what it's going to be you don't know what the song's going to be you know your job so it's either that or i have a short attention span but i loved it it was it was we were good the funk brothers was the best studio band in the world i always thought and we could prove it by the hits
0: What were some of the other, uh, you know, hit records that folks would know that you played on in Motown?
1: Well, you know, you got all the temptations like Ball of Confusion, Psychedelic Shack, just my imagination. I created that intro just right on the fly and uh, uh, most of those things. And then, you know, someday we'll be together, you know, that was with uh, uh, Diana Ross. And then I did War uh, with Edwin Starr and uh you know we just kept going so there's a whole list of you know uh my book guitars bars and motown superstars has some of the records i could remember i played on so i got about five or six pages of all the records i played on that i could remember
0: anyway. well just my imagination is so iconic well
1: that that, that introduction is like the introduction to my girl i mean it's just it's right there you know so i was glad to be able to uh, put that on there
0: and did you ever go out on tour with them, or it was just strictly studio?
1: No, uh, I went on tour uh, when Scorpio was a hit. I did some touring, and then I also I toured in uh, 2011 when I had a record out on Strut out of London, and uh, I toured to support that. And I did uh, I did the entire East Coast and the Midwest, and. Uh, Then I ended up doing Bonnaroo down by Nashville and then I did South by Southwest a couple times and then I ended up doing Long Beach and I ended up doing Seattle and Portland up there and then I used to do the House of Blues in New Orleans and everything and then I played in Memphis once as well so you know I got around and did stuff but uh, at the end of the day touring is a hard life you know it's a lot of you know and then I, I played in London and Paris twice so I've toured over there as well but uh You know, you just gets part of the job. And then, of course, you know, Rodriguez, that's a whole other story that I did. You know, me and Mike Theodore found him in the club and stuff. And uh, I opened up for Rodriguez in London and Manchester over there. So uh, that was part of that story, too. And then then searching for Sugar Man, you know, we're in that film, Mike Theodore and I. And then I'm in Standing in Shadows of Motown. And uh, I was on the Jimmy Fallon show with the Roots band. I mean, you can't get better than that.
0: Yeah. Um. What what was it like? What what were guys like Bob Babbitt? You know who we recently lost, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Jamerson. What were they like?
1: You know, ba- uh, Jamerson was just Jamerson. No one played like Jamerson ever. Babbitt came close to it, but no one. Jam- Jamerson was probably the top bass player in the world. Everybody, even Paul McCartney, was trying to play like Jamerson. I mean, he was he was the man. I mean, he just had that feel. You know. Uh, We used to talk because we were both kind of original to what we did. He was original. That was Jamerson. He didn't try to sound like anybody else. I never tried to sound like anybody else. So that's what we had in common. And his widow still comes out to the club, Annie. And some of his kids have come down to Northern Lights and stuff. So I always give Annie 20 bucks and say, Here, have a few drinks on me, but don't get drunk.
0: I've heard that uh, Norman Whitfield was maybe you know kind of listening to funkadelic um, back in yeah. those days. Um, well, know- I
1: played I played on the first funkadelic album, and I also played on the first George Clinton album. I want to testify. So uh, he he was very much uh, listening to that. Norman was a master at dynamics. Norman Whitfield when he would do a session. He'd be standing right in front of Uriel and Pistol, the two drummers. He'd be right in the middle of the rhythm section over there. And he'd be doing all these breakdowns. I'll cue you when to come in and all that stuff. He was a very hands-on producer. And he got the job done. I mean, he was a visionary. He brought Motown right into the psychedelic era. That was Norman. And I helped him do it.
0: Yeah, I actually have the first Funkadelic album uh, signed by George uh, framed on my wall behind me as we're talking right now. Oh, okay. It's okay. Up there. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, what was it like working with uh, George Clinton back then?
1: Uh, you know, uh, on uh, a few of the things, the fuckadelic stuff, I just overdubbed stuff on them, you know. So I went in and it was already done and he just put me in a room and I just put some guitar stuff on there. Uh, as far as uh, I want to testify, the charts were written out and we just did the arrangements, me and Eddie Willis over there at United Sound. And uh, yeah, George was cool. You know, I like George. He's always nice.
0: And you also were on Ruth Copeland's album too? Uh,
1: it's possible. The name sounds familiar to me, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, she was like a bit of a funky-like protege uh, back then. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. But but I had noticed you had a, a credit listed for that. So. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your own albums. You know, you came out in okay. uh, '69 with here uh, as. parent uh, things. Hair and things. Yeah, boy, that's a rocking album.
1: It is. It is. It's. Uh, I don't know. Right now, they're they're trying to figure out because it's been bootlegged over in Europe so much, but. Uh, that was a funky album, you know. We just did it. It's most of most of those things are live in the studio, but it just it shows the this that Detroit sound, you know. That whole thing. That, that was a, that was a great album. I liked doing it. That was the first one, and uh, the second was one was the evolution. That's where Scorpio came from. So I've had probably about eighteen or nineteen
0: albums out, I think. Yeah, I'm looking at the list, uh, Dennis. So. How did you decide from "Heron Things" to sort of uh, funk it, go a little more towards the funk and a little less towards the hard rock? Um, what what directed you that way?
1: Well, "Heron Things" was not a big hit, you know. So what I did is I was sitting in my basement at the time, and uh, I had a sound-on-sound sound tape recorder, a Sony, when they just came out. And uh, Mike Theodore and I were writing horns and strings and doing all this stuff for different artists we were producing. And and we were hired to do uh, different things like that. And uh, I thought to myself, uh, what if I write these songs and because I can do sound on sound, I'm going to make it like a guitar band. So I wrote the 10 songs and I overdubbed these other uh, guitar band concept and I played that for Mike Theodore and said I want to do this and he said I think it's a great idea and he got Clarence Avon involved to sign me a deal and we went in the studio and uh, and we started cutting that album, the Evolution album and at the same time now Hank Cosby comes over because I had a demo of well, It's Your Thing uh, it was like a finished master demo you know, and I, I gave a copy to Hank Cosby at Motown and I gave it to uh, Mike Theodore sent a copy to Clarence Avon and Clarence gave us a deal and we're ready to go, you know, and uh, I'm already in the studio and uh, Hank Cosby comes up to me and says, Barry loves that song. He wants to sign into a contract. I says, well, you're too late. I'm already signed. That's kind of how that came about.
0: And, and how did you come up with uh, Scorpio in particular?
1: Oh, uh, you know, the way I write is, uh, I, I just sit in my basement and come up with guitar chords and stuff and I just put it together that way and that's how the, and the songs just kind of almost write themselves sometime. I mean they just show up. You know I start playing some chord patterns and they lead to other chord patterns and before you know it I got a song. I mean that's just the way I write and then I'll lay down the tracks on a little recorder and stuff and then I'll add a couple things to them and I'll have a song. That's kind of how we did it. And then I wrote the charts out uh, on, on the albums. I wrote the charts out because it was all guitar band stuff anyway. So uh, I wrote the charts off for that, too, and then Theodore and myself went in the studio and we recorded and I remember doing the rhythm guitar track while we were doing the session and then the breakdown on Scorpio. I just uh, this did a breakdown like a la Norman Whitfield. Bam! And Babbitt created that amazing solo. It was, it was, it was just how how we rolled back then.
0: Did, did you require many takes or I mean, how many takes did it take?
1: Ah, uh, you know what, we were usually doing a song an hour however long that took takes wise you know we never counted the takes uh Scorpio maybe it took a little longer because we had that long it was a long cut and we had the breakdown but uh, we didn't do the breakdown we just did it I mean we did it in the studio the breakdown was in there and uh Bongo Eddie and Jack Ashford were talking in the background and all that stuff and then uh uh, it was done. We went out to the next song and then I remember in New York we're mixing it at Darcy Victor Studios in New York. We and Mike and Mike heard all those guys talking in the background. He said, well, let's leave, let's leave that in there. So we left it in there and that's how Scorpio was done.
0: So what was your reaction when it took off like it did?
1: You know, it was out there for a year and didn't do anything. So uh, I said, well, I'm a, I did another album. Uh, I think it was... Uh, Uh, right after that, I can't think of the name of the album, but I had horns and strings on there. So uh, then I got a call from Ron Mosley. He was the uh, promo guy for Sussex in New York. And he says, stop whatever you're doing on this other album. And he says, Scorpio's just taken off. And he says, so we're going to go out and I'm going to resurface Scorpio because it took off in a dance club. So he says, I'm going to go after it now. We think we got to hit here. So then I ended up doing Uh, Taurus and some more guitar band stuff to put on the other album that I started to use horns and strings on. So I wrote those songs to match the Scorpio stuff.
0: That certainly had the feel, you know, and the tension of like a, um, you know, action movie uh, theme, Uh you know?
1: Well, then I did Black Bill Jones. That ties right into that kind of deal.
0: Exactly. So did that influence them in, in signing up for that?
1: Clarence got me at uh, he knew some people at Warner Brothers, and I told Clarence that uh, I wanted to do something with the movie. So I wrote the main theme and the love thing for Black Belt Jones, and I put that counterpoint thing in the middle with all those voices going crazy, and then I uh, I ran the voices through my wah wah pedal through my amplifier. <laughs> I thought that'd be a good idea.
0: Did you feel pressure, or did the labels pressure you at all to sort of come up with a Scorpio part two?
1: No. Uh, yeah, we, Mike and I just did what we did and uh, it always turned out fine. You know, as producers, that's what we did. We were given a budget. We were given a timeline and we had to turn out, uh, you, know, you know, we had Jim Gold in the gallery. We were doing them. We had, uh, eventually we were doing Rodriguez and then we had myself. and. Uh, That's what we did. We went in the studio, and uh, that was our job, you know,
0: so that's how we worked it. And I'm looking down this list of impressive credits, and I know there's not even nearly all of them here, and and people should get your book um, that we'll mention again uh, before we part um, to see everything. But um, I see that you worked with Valerie Simpson, uh, according this, and also... Yes. Later on, uh, Marvin Gaye's I Want You, which was a great mid-seventies album. Yeah. Do you have any particular memories? Did you get to work with them or were you just in the studio on your own?
1: Uh, Valerie and Simpson used to produce stuff at Motown. They probably had the most complex charts of anybody over there. They were excellent. Uh, the I Want You album, Marvin was smoking a joint the whole time. We <laughs> 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 were doing the album. Marvin, was Marvin? What are you going to say about that? Well, you know, a lot of stuff's legal anyways. But Marvin was just very laid back. What a what a nice guy! Very, very nice guy.
0: Uh, also, uh, Quincy Jones's "Body Heat" and um, yeah, played with Ringo.
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, "Good Night Vienna" album, I played on that stuff, and uh, with um, uh, Quincy Jones, you know, uh, he was the one that. Uh, Clarence Avon played Scorpio before it came out to Quincy Jones in that album and Quincy Jones says that would be the hit right away He knew it wow. <laughs> So I did that with him. So, you know, that that's what we did out there and uh, uh, The West Coast was different because the Funk Brothers weren't really out there So but it was still a, a good experience, you know, I was I was working with Tom Jones and everybody else out there So uh, and Ringo was very cool. I just taken a hunting expedition up in Northern California, and uh, I got a call. I don't know how they tracked me down, but he wanted me to uh, do some more overdubs for him. So I come back from my hunting trip. And uh, so Ringo and me are sitting there waiting for Richard Perry, and he's an hour late. So Ringo got to hear about my hunting trip. It was very cool, very nice guy. Ringo's very cool.
0: I've only heard good things about him. Yeah, yeah. Um, Also the dramatics, of course, I don't think you can uh, work in Detroit and not do something with the dramatics, right?
1: Yeah, well, I did that thing in the rain, you know, that Ecoplex thing, but that. And then I put this other device on, what you see is what you get for them. There were big kids for them.
0: Um, Johnny Mathis, uh, sort of the other end of the spectrum.
1: Yeah, that was a kind of a commercial we did. And uh, he wasn't there when we did the track, but I didn't get a chance to meet him. But it's just, you just... You know, when you're doing sessions, so many of them. You know, uh, I remember when we when we, uh, did a uh, uh, album with Tom Jones. He was sitting in the corner the whole time. He didn't say much. but, You know, we did some for him.
0: Also, undisputed truth over at Motown, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We did. Uh, I did. Uh, smiling Faces. That's me doing that guitar solo on there. I made that up during the session.
0: I had uh, Joe Harris was on the show. Um, very
1: yeah. enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a nice guy, very nice guy. I've seen him every so often. Later on, you know, I've seen him at a club or some event like or something.
0: So, out of the rest of your records, you, you ended up signing with Westbound in the mid 70s and doing some records there. Right. Was the seed planted there from when you worked on that first Funkadelic record, or nothing to do with that?
1: I don't think it had anything to do with that. What had happened was is that uh, we were under uh, salary with Clarence Avon. And he was having some problems with the label. And so we were out in LA and I wanted to come back to Detroit. So Clarence was nice enough to let us out of the contract and Armand Beladian was nice enough to sign us to a contract as producers for Westbound. So when we came back to Detroit, we had a job. I mean, it didn't last that long, but at least we had something.
0: And I mean, chart. Chart-wise, I'm guessing sales-wise, Finger Licking Good was a bit of a comeback, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Was that a controversial cover at the time?
1: Very much so, but I didn't do it. I didn't design (laughs) that cover, so it wasn't my fault. They pulled it out. They they wouldn't even put it in some record stores, but that was not my, uh, I didn't do that. You don't see my cover designed by me. I learned uh, quite a few years ago, don't mess with the art director's job and try and do a cover or it'll just delay your album for about a year. So I stayed out of their business.
0: Yeah, but it probably helped sell some more fried chicken anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Too bad they didn't get Kentucky Fried involved. We've made some money.
0: <laughs> you also were uh, on CJ and Company.
1: Yeah, Mike Theodore and I found them. We did Devil's Gun. And, uh, uh, they were a good group. I mean, that was the number one disco record in the
0: country. How did you feel about disco? I mean, you obviously were in funk, and a lot of funk, uh, you know, artists felt, uh, you know, differently. Some some jumped right into disco, and other ones, uh, you know, felt it was sort of a sellout. How would you feel?
1: Well, you know what, uh, That uh, what's it, Saturday Night Live? Was that the name of it? What's that uh, record they did with that movie? Stand uh, Alive. Staying Alive, yeah. Uh, Mike theater and I used to go down to the studio down there in uh, Fort Lauderdale. We used to do mixes down there. It was a very uh, it was a good studio down there. And uh, that first album, it was disco, but it, it wasn't what disco became. It was the beginning of kind of disco, but it was very funky. It was a soulful disco record, I thought. You know, it was really had a soulful sound to it. So, but then, you know, disco changed. And, uh, you know, it's like anything else. I've gone to disco conventions and Mike and I, Mike Theater and I, because uh, we had disco hits. and everything, It's all part of the business. It wasn't, uh, you know, whatever seemed, seemed to be going, if you're making a living as a record producer, you just can't, oh, I won't do this or won't do that. You just try and survive, you know.
0: You also worked with uh, David Ruffin uh, and Boss Gags. Yep. Those are just,
1: you go do sessions and, you know, you, you get done with the session, you get paid and you go home. You know, it's kind of, uh, I, I did one thing out in L.A. where uh, Mike Campbell was an artist at Motown, so uh, he ended up being an actor later on. So anyways, we uh, rehearsed for a showcase for him at the Troubadour. So anyways, we rehearsed and so we go to the gig that night. We rehearsed the songs, So they made us wear these Desi Arnaz with the big sleeve shirts. And so we're up there on stage. And I don't know what got into Mike Campbell. But he shows up at the finale to the song we're doing, Going to Get Married in the Chapel of Love, and Mike Campbell's wearing a wedding gown. <laughs> and then, if that's not bad enough, and I could see Pops Gordy sitting in the front cringing, he lifts up his... He's got two girls dressed... Uh, they're dressed like... Uh, in canoes. I don't know. It's like canoes. I don't know. They're supposed to be what they were supposed to be in the canoe deals with the big canoes sticking out. Anyways, Mike Campbell lifts up his wedding gown and this strapless, this midget, a male midget in the strapless evening gown jumps out and starts dancing on the stage with everybody. I said, man, that's about a three martini night there. What year was that? That was uh, probably 74, 75 maybe. Wow.
0: That that sounds like a George Clinton kind of thing. I I'm, later on I know they had a uh, uh, guitar player that would wear a wedding dress.
1: Yeah, George Clinton did that. Well, that was uh, that's what uh, Michael uh, uh, did. That that was that was the thing that he did with the wedding gown, Mike Campbell.
0: <laughs> you know, I've heard that uh, Barry Gordy wasn't exactly uh, embracing of funk and that he didn't like the term and so forth. Did you get any sense? of him having sort of a disdain or dislike for the genre or for anything related to it? Uh,
1: I think Norman Whitfield was the one that that put that together. And uh, I only saw Barry Gordy in the studio twice when all the time I was at Mo West and Motown here. uh, I saw him twice with Diana Ross in the studio. That's the only time I ever saw him in there.
0: Did, did you sense, though, that uh, Whitfield had to battle for any of the, uh, you know, music he was trying to get through the Motown machine?
1: Ah, possible. But, you know, once he did Cloud Nine, and that was the first Grammy that Motown got, I don't think there was a problem after that.
0: And you were the first white artist, I understand, to appear on Soul Train.
1: Absolutely. Uh, that cut's still out there. I think they finally found it, because I think it was on that uh, The Black Godfather. I think uh, Clarence Avon found that and showed a cut of that.
0: What was that experience like?
1: Well, well usually they, a lot of people were doing uh, lip syncs to records. I brought my whole band in there. And when the kids found out I was going to be on that, they packed that place. You couldn't move in there. The kids were going crazy. So it was really, I had a lot of fun with that. I really enjoyed it.
0: Did you just do the one track or two show or two songs?
1: I just did Scorpio. You know, that was that was the track. And then I did American Bandstand while I was out there. But that was a Panama thing. I was Mike Douglas show in New York. And that was just, uh, uh, I think I played my guitar to a, a track that we brought out there or something with that. thing.
0: So of course, Scorpio went on to be, you know, certainly one of the most sampled Recordings by uh, hip hop and rappers. Um, I think
1: it's about 110 times so far.
0: That's just incredible. How? W- when did you first become aware that someone had done that, and and how did you feel about it?
1: Uh, the first group that did it was Public Enemy, and I was in a studio mixing another album, and I said, "Well, what are the, what are the new people doing? You know, what what?" Uh, What's the new records like, you know? And so I was at uh, Studio A with Eric, Eric Morgeson, and he's playing me this thing by Public Enemy. And here I, I hear getting it on my track that they're rapping to. I said, I don't remember getting paid for that. And the guys at Public Enemy told me later, well, we didn't have any money to pay you guys, so we'd sampled it. So I told Clarence Avon, I says, you know, we're getting sampled here. So at that time, Clarence Avon was chairman of the board of Motown, and he was in New York. He says, well, we're not going to run around suing everybody. He says, I'll talk to these label presidents and we'll work out a way where you get some money. So I started getting parting, part writing on all the songs that were using my samples.
0: Well, that's a good thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure I didn't get all of it, but I didn't have to sue anybody. And uh, so uh, that's how it worked. So I did get some money, so that was all right.
0: I know, though, in 82, some years before uh, Public Enemy, uh, Grandmaster Flash did a track called Scorpio. I thought that uh-huh. used the music, too.
1: Well, they probably did, but they they were probably paying you know, for the sample, I would imagine. You know, I know uh, Young MC did it, and then LL Cool J did it, too. They used part of Scorpio's and their stuff.
0: Did you ever get any direct feedback from any of those guys? Um, you know, what appealed to them about it so much that they, they incorporated into their own works?
1: Uh-huh. I did talk to Public Enemy briefly, but not not really about that. I think part of the thing that really, in those days, is we had this big breakdown where you had the congas and all that stuff. So it was pretty easy to sample that, and you could because uh, that was the groove. So they used those breakdowns and they sampled the breakdowns, because there wasn't any music there, just a drum breakdown and conga breakdowns and all that. So it was easy for them to sample that and link it up and put stuff over it, you know. But they liked it apparently and it was a hit so that's why they sampled it so it seemed to work because it certainly helped sell a lot of uh, hip-hop records and then the hip-hop guys all knew who I was.
0: As you were doing your thing through the 70s and into the 80s, Dennis, um, were there any other acts out there or guitar players that kind of caught your ear that you in particular uh, took a liking to?
1: Uh, you know, uh, other than uh, just some of the guys. I did, uh, you know, I played with Les Paul. You can't get better than that, you know. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I did a thing with Larry Carlton. He, he's an excellent player. And, so, and some of the guys, you know, that was kind of, you know, we were just working, doing stuff, you know. That, uh, that, that's how I looked at it. And there there was a point in my life where, you uh, Uh, suddenly the phone stops ringing. It happens to everybody. So I ended up working on an assembly line at GM to support my family. And then uh, I ended up going back to uh, Wayne State University. My undergrad was music and harmony and theory. And I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in uh, uh, general studies. And I ended up getting a master's degree in education. So uh, I ended up, the last 10 years of my career, I was a... manufacturing consultant at Ford Motor Company and they were sending me all over to you know they sent me actually sent me to uh, Germany a couple times and uh, uh, and then I was doing uh, going to all their plants and everything and I was a coach and
0: uh,
1: uh, assessor of the plants and everything so uh, I made good money at it so that was that was how I found something else to do.
0: was oh, like uh, the second chapter of your life there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then after after that was over and uh, Ford downsized of course, and let the consultants go, let their, made their super superintendents uh, early retire and all that stuff. So, but that was about right time for me to retire anyway. So it just segwayed in and that's just okay. Now I'm going back to music. So uh,
0: away we went. And um, I don't know what year that was, but I do know that in 2010, uh, you, along with the Funk Brothers, were inducted into the Michigan Rock and Roll Legends Hall of Fame. And then yeah. and then just a year or two ago, uh, you got in on your own. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations on that. Uh, thank you. Um, how did that feel? Is that, is that something that was important to you?
1: Well, you know, anytime uh, you get, well, you know, my home state, you know, I've lived here pretty much other than uh, L.A. and, New York, but I've lived here most of my life, so it's really great to get uh, recognized in your in your uh, home state and so forth. So uh, I'm always appreciative of, of things like that, you know. So that uh, that was good, you know. And uh, again, I've got gold records and all that other stuff, which is good as well. So and then I've uh, I've got a. Uh, Funk Brother Award from the r Foundation, so that's another one that's good. And I've got quite a few Detroit Music Awards and all that stuff up there, so life is good.
0: How would you describe your approach to the instrument?
1: Uh, I consider myself a student of the instrument. I mean, a guitar is is a people's instrument, because you can take a guitar and throw it, Not throw it, but you can take a guitar to the beach, you can take the guitar to the party, you can do whatever because it's one of those instruments you can do that with. So uh, I've always considered myself a student of the guitar. I have uh, probably about 10 different guitars right now. Uh, So I'm still learning, you know, I'm still learning and uh, I never play the same song the same way twice even on on my job when when I do my shows every Tuesday night at Northern Lights uh, uh, we'll do the same songs but other than the melody that's it I take a jazz approach to it and and once we count off the song then I I never play a solo the same way twice that would make me really bored so that makes that's why I'm still doing it because I have the freedom to do what I want no one the club owner never tells me what to do and uh, the guys in the band, I don't tell them what to do. I count off the songs and say, let's go. And
0: so we have fun. What, what would be your advice to somebody who maybe plays in a different genre or is just learning guitar, um, you know, a couple of like keys to, to being able to be, uh, you know, on it when you're playing funk in particular?
1: Well, you know what, it's like uh, it's pursuit of excellence. When I was going to high school, on summer break, all summer, I would practice eight hours a day. So it, that was my whole point. If, if there was a guitar teacher around that knew something that I didn't know, I'd take lessons. Uh, my undergrad, you know, I majored in Harmony and Theory at Wayne State, so I could write arrangements, I could write anything I could hear on my head in my head. I could write on paper and hire someone to play it. and sound like it's supposed to sound. So when I went to, went to Wayne State University, I learned the mechanics of music, the mechanics of harmony and theory. How how that how, how this stuff makes sense. And so that that was a big uh, a big thing for me, you know, to be able to communicate musically with others and and how do you write arrangements and do all that stuff. That was uh, that was very important. So that. that but it's still I'm still learning, you know, I'm still learning when I play and everything and uh, uh, learning new songs and stuff. And uh, so that, that's the way I look at it. You know, it's just it's a journey. You're on a journey. It's not like you get up one day. and Oh, I'm not uh, the best at this and that's the end. So I'll just go do this. And some people go out and do their shows just like the records and they make a living doing it. I couldn't do that. It drives me crazy. Every time we do Scorpio, it's different. But it's fun.
0: What would you say is your own personal favorite genre? Would it be jazz?
1: Right now I'm more into probably the contemporary jazz. It's not, I can play traditional. In fact, uh, the album I just had out on Mecca on the Detroit Music Factory uh, is uh, more of a traditional jazz album. So, uh, but uh, right now I'm leaning more towards the uh, contemporary jazz
0: yeah I, I took a listen to that dennis very nice down by the river came out uh yeah. just last year
1: yeah yeah so and then you know and I, I managed to get an album out for about three years in a row because i had that album out on, on resonance and then i had a couple of albums out on uh this other label uh omnivore so <laughs> still out there
0: Is there a particular record that you made other than Scorpio that is your your favorite or you feel most proud of?
1: Well, you know what? Uh, Scorpio was my biggest hit, so that was very cool. Uh, but I also uh, the Cloud 9 session I did with Motown because it was the first session I did over there. And that, that record's kicking. If you listen to the groove with the flunks on Cloud 9, that's, that's an amazing record by the Temps. You know, so that 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 just sticks in my mind. You know, and I, I like playing on the Fallon Show with the Roots Band. That was another good thing. And then playing with Les Paul and uh, all that stuff at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Larry Carlton and those guys. That was all just great things. And then I played at the House of Blues in New Orleans a couple times down there with Little Buck Seneca's band. And Buck Weezadico was on B three organ and all that stuff. That was another great experience. So we had, uh, you know. And I got a chance in Memphis to hear the original Sun Records uh, rhythm section—the guys that were still left doing stuff down there. So you get to hear that. So and then going to Europe, London and Paris, and all that stuff, hearing all that stuff, working with the guys. So I had the rhythm section with some Manchester in the UK. They played behind me. They did an excellent job playing that stuff.
0: With all the you know sampling and, and heavy production today, do you still feel like? there's a, a decent emergence or flow of, of quality players?
1: I think the young people, they can play. I mean, they're not horsing around. Yeah, you get some that are going to be using samples and they're going to be doing, you know, many of the hip hop stuff, but you got country musicians, you got jazz musicians, you got pop musicians. Uh, there's a song, uh, there's a, uh, a special on Netflix, uh, Hired Hands, I think it's called. This is an excellent portrayal of studio guys and what they do and guys that back up major artists on the road, all the work that they do. I mean, that that's a whole scenario. And uh, yeah, the young people can play. I mean, they're not the, it's just part of the DNA, I think, maybe in America, maybe in other countries as well. I mean, the young folks, you know, in Detroit especially, you got young musicians that are great musicians. They're coming out of the woodwork in Detroit all over the place. It's still the same way when Motown started here. And Barry Gorey told me himself he started Motown in Detroit because of the talent that was here, and he was right on with that. And he was a visionary. Look what he did with Motown.
0: And he's still he's with go- he, he's still with us, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can you can go any night of the week in Detroit and hear any kind of music seven nights a week. Detroit is such a musical town; it's just part of the DNA here.
0: One other track I just noticed that we didn't mention that I just want the listeners and viewers to also be aware of, uh, you played on uh, Band of Gold?
1: Yes, I used Electric electric Sitar for that, a Choral Electric Sitar I, I bought. So I used that on that record with Free Your Pain.
0: Wow, wow. Such classic, classic recordings, uh, Dennis. It's been an honor to uh, talk to you about it.
1: Well, I'm glad some are still interested, so I'm always blabbing. Why not? I I talk at the Motown Museum sometime too, so I donated one of my guitars to the Motown Museum. So when you go into Motown Museums, you'll you'll see my guitar sitting there. I put it where it was when I played on it, and I put the wah wah pedal and plugged it all up like it used to be. So and they'll send people down on Tuesday night right from the museum tour. They'll send them down to hear me play live. So it all kind of works together.
0: Wow, that's fantastic, and Again, that book that you mentioned uh, came out in 2004, but still available. Guitars, Bars, and Motown Superstars.
1: Yeah, on uh, University of Michigan Press it's the publisher.
0: And um, and the album is down by the river. And uh, where's the best place for people to keep up with you, and you know, maybe uh, pick up a record like that?
1: Well, uh, they can go on my uh, my website. Is Dennis Coffee? Uh, s i t e dot com and they can see stuff on there and I have a a, you know they can hear some of my records on there but there's a bunch of stuff on that website.
0: Outstanding. You know, I um, enjoyed seeing. I got to see Les Paul play the Iridium, you know, in his latter years and. uh,
1: Yeah, I I played. uh, when Les uh I played with him when he was still alive at the Iridium I sat in with him but then after he passed away Gibson Guitar had me play with his trio on his birthday in Waukesha where he was born so I ended up taking his place with his trio for some gigs for Gibson which is very
0: nice oh fantastic well uh Dennis you know, keep me informed uh, if if you uh, put something else out, and I hope I get a chance to uh, catch you perform someday as well.
1: Okay, well we're here we're here doing it. Anytime you get in town, you know, give me a jingle or whatever, and let me know.
0: Very good. Thank you so much for uh, doing Truth and Rhythm.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care now.
1: All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride. With Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Also goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend tell family this audience is growing and it is a beautiful thing all coming together for the love of this great music also if you can throw us a buck or two we could use the support financially keeping the lights on keeping the servers going all these expenses if you can help support the program whatever you can give much appreciated go to the FunkinStuff.net website on the right hand side of every page. You just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also drop me a line, email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly and I much enjoy the uh, rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. Hit me, you yeah.
1: You better take some insurance out on your booty tonight Cause we are not responsible Ain't it fucking now?